A word of caution, this episode contains stories and personal memories of war that may be challenging for some listeners. Well, that's cool. Right? Hello, isolators, and welcome to another episode of Well, That's Cool, a podcast about things and people I'm curious about. I hope you're doing well, finding some joy in your time of quarantines and distancing. I'm almost done my fourth week of working and more or less staying at home all the time. It's hard to believe it's that long already. It's just about Easter as well. Tomorrow is Good Friday, and I know that for many people, this was supposed to be a weekend of spending time with family and observing important religious events in a variety of faith calendars. I was looking forward to a vacation back home on the West Coast, but I'm still in Edmonton. At least things are, or were for a couple days, getting a bit warmer, finally. I know that this level of disruption can be difficult, especially now that we're about a month into isolation, and our first holiday weekend is here. I, of course, feel sad for the change, too, but I know we are doing this for a very important reason, and that in the greater scheme of things, it really hasn't been that long. You've probably seen the memes and commentaries that this is our generation's moment of sacrifice, our experience of sort of a quasi-wartime and widespread pulling together for the greater good. It feels a bit harder to complain when you put it that way. I've been thinking of disruption and the impact it has on our lives recently, and that too has made me think of wartime, especially the Second World War when many parts of the world were under occupation for four or five years. So, to get a better picture of what life during the war was like, and if there's any comparison to today, I called up somebody who could tell me, from personal experience, a bit more about life during the occupation. Hello, Ben. Hello, good to hear from you. Good, yeah, nice to hear your voice. Yes, great to hear yours as well. It's been a long time. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm. I feel safe, and uh, it's not as bad as in the war. <laughs> so yes, uh, that voice you hear is my grandmother, Angelina Fastvlar. And you may get this sense in listening to our conversation, but it's been a while since we've chatted. I admit that it does, in fact, sometimes take a global pandemic for me to call my grandmother. Let's call this my public apology for that. I called my grandma not just because she lived through the war but because she wrote about those experiences in a memoir, published in 2018. The memoir is from a child's perspective, and has interesting insight into how children experience significant change and trauma. I wanted to get a sense of if there really was a commonality between COVID-19 and the occupation, and if there is anything we could learn from that war 80 years ago. But to get some context, and for your benefit, dear listener, I asked my grandma to start at the very beginning. So I, I have read the book. I thought it was really interesting. I read it about a year ago now. Um, but, but I guess just sort of as a, as a background, can you tell me how old you were when you, um, when you experienced the, the occupation? It was right after your birthday, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. I turned four in April. And uh, it was right after that that uh, in May the invasion took place. The, the German, yeah, the Nazi invasion took place in May, May the 10th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, was, I had just turned four. And I really, no, I don't remember the invasion. I, I, I sort of thought maybe I remembered all the parachutes in the sky because there was thousands of parachutes in the sky. They, they surprised us, right? Because Hitler had promised that he would not invade us in Belgium because he said, I don't need your countries for my campaign. 
and he had we had also been neutral in the first world war mm-hmm. so um he had apparently our queen had, had spoken with him and the royal families are related so there's there's a real connection between the dutch and the german and mm-hmm. he had promised that he would let us be neutral so and then even the night before he invaded he had this radio broadcast where he was uh, applauding us <laughs> and uh, saying again that he did not uh you know, that he did not need our countries for his campaign. And yet then the next morning, as a surprise, I think he started at four in the morning, thousands and thousands of parachutes and uh, tanks across the border. And just just did so much carnage in three days because nobody was expecting it. And Holland hadn't been to war for like 150 years. They really didn't have too much of of an army or, uh, you know, tanks or anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he just... Flattened Rotterdam, which was really bad. Um, it was very, it was very sad. It was very, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you weren't living in a big city though. You were you were out in the country when this happened. Yeah, we were five miles out of the big city. My my dad had a beautiful property there with his two brothers. They ran a market gardening business. Uh, there was an old farmhouse on the property when they bought it. Actually, their dad gave it to them. Um, and they tore down that old house and built this big, beautiful three-family home, like sort of like three condos, I guess you could think of it, as in a in a big, beautiful home. So that was our, our home and had a beautiful big yard at the back. I always liked the yard because it was like a big square. The chicken run was on one side, the barn was on the far side, and then the packing shed was on, on the third side, and the house, of course, on the fourth side. So it was it was like a big protected room. And that's where I spent my childhood. Lots of running, lots of running. Later on, I got skipping rope and marbles. And but wartime, we didn't, you know, nobody bought toys. We didn't have very many toys, so it was a lot of activity: skating in the winter, and sledding, and swimming in the summer. Because you you were right next to a canal. Yeah, we had a small canal that ran right right along our property, and then a big shipping canal just next to that, which had which. Uh, the water was at sea level, so it was was much more imposing and big, and you could see the big ships come through right from the ocean. And you were there with uh, you had some siblings as well who were alive at that time. My my brother was a year and a half older than than I was, and because the three families lived there, my cousins next door, my the boy cousin was a year older than me, and the girl cousin was a year younger. So the four of us were all the same age. We got along really well. I can't remember fighting. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we spent our, spent our time running, <laughs> playing, playing tag and playing hide and seek. It was good. It was safe. It was good. You talk about how in, um, sort of in those early years, especially the first two or three years, that your parents did a lot to sort of protect you from knowing what was going on. Um, like you, you talk about going to school and sort of realizing that there was a little bit more happening in your area. Um, how important was that for them to do? I just came out of that, like now researching it and writing the book, I just came away again, just admiring, admiring my parents, the wisdom they had and the strength they had. And yes, they protected us. They, uh, they did, of course, being a child at the time. They were just very immature individuals. I never, I never saw them fight. I never heard bad words. I never. Uh, they both came from very loving families. So, 
and having a business with his two brothers that was seemed to be all done with so much goodwill. So no, I I came away just extremely thankful for the maturity and the, the courage and the strength of my both my parents. And so the, when the war started, um, do you know what sort of big differences happened, both for the family and and just for you? Yeah, what struck me was the losses that we experienced. And this might seem silly, but the first loss was the loss of light. Mom had to put up these great these big dark brown heavy curtains on all the windows. I'm only three at the time, and I remember this so well. And I thought, why in the world is she doing that? They're ugly. And I pulled on them, and I said, I don't want them. And she says, no, no, we have to have them because the the airplanes can't see our lights. Well, that didn't make no sense. <laughs> I looked at our lamp, our nice chandelier, and I thought, well, what's wrong with that? Why can't anybody see that? So I was very upset about these curtains, and I stayed being upset about them for the whole five years. Uh, it's just a small thing, it seemed, that uh, so the loss of light was, was what, what hit me, because as soon as dusk came, the curtains had to be shut. And so when you were experiencing, um, you know, obviously as a child, these changes both in your family and in your community around you, um, do you think you really understood it, or, or was it really only looking back on it that you've you've discovered some of these feelings and some of these stories? Um, well, actually, what I've written in the book, you know, my memories are all very clear. I, I, I just couldn't believe when I started writing it then how many memories just seemed to tumble out. So, of course, um, it, because the events were so stark and because they were so different and because they were so scary... I guess it was just imprinted on your mind, and they stayed there until I started to dig. <laughs> so that, and then, of course, I, I added the information that went on in the rest of the world because we had no way of knowing that. Yeah, I guess really for, for you, you were you were kind of in the dark, as you said, about what was going on outside in some ways. Yes, yes. All we knew was these soldiers were very scary. They had these clicking boots that made a lot of noise, and they had these guns over their shoulders, and they shouted at us, and they called us names. And I've often wondered about that. Okay, we're six, seven, eight years old. What are we doing that, you know, that is so terrible that we need to be yelled at? I just, it was so scary. It was so scary. Especially the one time after they took our school, they, they just inhabited our school, so there was no school for us. And um, one day we, we would still play on the schoolyard once in a while, and I was there one day and needed to use the, use the washroom, which was a row of outhouses in the back of the school. And I opened the first one, and here's this Nazi sitting there. And he hollered at me, and he yelled at me, and he called me Schweinhutmensch and grabbed his gun. And, you know, I'm seven years old. <laughs> that was so scary. So yeah, that was, mm -hmm. we, we realized they were scary and they were taking things from us. The fruit became much shorter and uh, we were not allowed to wear orange because we were from the House of Orange, the royal family. And um, yeah, this is a little aside that I just love and remember so well. Mom was very defiant that day and she says, yeah, right, no orange. We have what they call an orange day, which means it's the queen's birthday or the king's birthday. And the whole country's full of orange. So she had made little orange bows from orange wool and pinned them all on these, <clears throat> on these big dark drapes in the, in the dining room. And I just loved it. I loved mom for her, for her, uh, strength, you know, mm -hmm. but also 
I can still remember, I just see the picture in front of my eyes, there's these dark curtains with all these orange little butterflies, you know, swaying back and forth. You said, and you wrote in the book, that the school was, was sort of taken over. There was a time where it looked like you were going to have to go to school with them there, or at least we nearby, yeah, but... and then the school was canceled. So how did that change? I mean, obviously you didn't go to school for a couple of years. How did that sort of change your life? Um, they took the school, but then they reneged, said we could have one classroom. So the whole school was squished into one classroom, half in the morning and half in the afternoon. That was not pleasant because it was so, and the, and the soldiers were in the hall and in the other classrooms and we heard them yell and we heard the boots and, you know, we saw the guns. So that was very scary. And then the last winter, this was all during the, during 44, during the last year, that winter, that 44 winter was the coldest on record, 44, 45. And they must have decided that either they couldn't afford to heat, heat the whole school or what, but then we were sent home again. So there was at least, I would say, five months that there was no school at all. And, um, mm. yeah, so, but we spent our time skating because the winter was so severe. We had snow, which we don't always get too much in Holland. So we sled it down the uh, dike, the canal dike, and we skated all winter. And it was lovely, six whole weeks, I remember. <laughs> of just enjoying that but yeah in the back of your mind you knew something very serious was happening especially the way mom and dad would would talk like they would try to do it very quietly but you know we could pick up that it had been a bad day in the city that kind of thing and so i guess the the sort of experience of fighting though was really only a shorter window for you really it was occupation more than than fighting war we didn't know the fighting except for the bombers going overhead. And that was another very scary thing for us. As many as 300 big bombers would leave England and fly right over where we were, depending where they would go in Germany, to go on bombing missions in Germany. And they would come over to our house. And that was so, can you imagine the noise, 300 of them, mm -hmm. over 300. And then uh, sniper, little sniper planes with them. So, yeah, we saw all that and we knew. You know, the, you can't be a kid and not know what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They were going to drop bombs because I remember lying in bed and thinking, okay, they're going to drop bombs. Are they going to drop one on a house where there's a 10-year-old girl like me? Is she going to survive? You know, you, yeah, you're a child and you, you think that through. Mm -hmm. And then um, about 10 o'clock, they would, about 8 o'clock, I think, they would go. And then about midnight, they would come back. But the ones coming back were always way less than the ones that had gone. Right. And I was quite aware of that. I was quite aware of that. And then, uh, like I said, there's sniper planes with them. Of course, the enemy also had sniper planes that would shoot at these bombers. And uh, one of the other most scary events that I experienced was uh, the bombers coming down, like burning. This burning bomber came toward our house that had delivered his load of bombs into Germany and was on his way back, but he was shot at several times. So the two wings were burning, the tail was burning, and there was a long, long streak of smoke behind him. And he was going down, going down, and we were outside looking at this, and everybody screaming. And they ran behind the house to see where the plane would explode and come down. I ran the other way. And then, uh, it's a long story, Anyways, at supper time, nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. And uh, finally, Mom says, that pilot stayed with the plane. 
until it cleared our house. Mm. I don't want you to ever forget that. Mm. So his name was um, Francis Gerald. Yeah. Mm. But the Nazis were right there, and he was taken prisoner and uh, was a prisoner of war in Germany, according to a newspaper article from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, there were some very scary times, and we very well knew that war was horrible. War was horrible. It's fascinating hearing the stories of life changing through the eyes of a child, what my grandma remembers about losing things like light and beautiful colors, and what acts brightened her days. Kids today are out of school too, but thankfully not facing years without education, let alone yelling soldiers in the hallways and playgrounds. Being under occupation in the countryside made life quite isolating for a six-year-old just starting school, so I asked if there was much interaction or awareness of other people's experiences at the time. Well, what, what I experienced is the helpfulness of my of my parents with other people. Like they sheltered a lot of the uh, village people in our in our basement. The last when the last battle occurred at the in in Groningen, in that big city that we lived just five kilometers away, there was a very it was a, one of the latter battles, um, and we were only like I say thirty five kilometers away from it, so we could see it and hear it and see the flames and hear the explosions. And yet they sheltered a lot of people in our huge basement because the house was so huge. The basement was also huge, and it was used as a garage for the wagons. So that was, of course, cleared out, and there was just a lot of people hiding there the last uh, the last few days of the war. Dad had uh, a, a vegetable route in town, like market gardening meant they had wagons, and they would load them with vegetables and take them to town probably three or four times a week with a horse, of course. And... Um, sell these door to door okay that was done in those days and uh, some of his customers were jews and he just loved these people he had a real heart for the for the jewish families and uh this this hurt him so much when the nazis would come and take another jewish family i remember the meal times became sad events because dad would say what happened in the city that day and i remember once he just got up from the table in tears because another family was taken and then the saddest story he told us, uh, Hitler decided that all the Jews had to wear a, a yellow star on their jackets to identify them as being Jewish. Uh, one Jewish family had a, um, a, you know, a Dutch family living next door to them, and the children played together. So the Jewish little girl had a star on her jacket, and the little neighbor girl wanted a star also. She begged her mom for a star. Of course, the first mom said no, and then she thought, oh, what's the big deal? You know, it can do no harm. So she sewed a star on the girl's jacket. And sure enough, the Nazis came and took that whole family away, even though they were not Jewish. And that's the night that Dad just cried. He just, just his heart was just breaking for them. Because they were his dear customers, and, uh, and they were Jewish. They were, you know, beloved people of God. Yeah. Let's also try to be helpful to others in need as we face our isolation. Comparatively, there's so many more opportunities for connection, service, and care, even from a distance today. I had the opportunity to visit my grandma's childhood home when I visited Europe in 2011. If you want to see what the house looked like 10 years ago, and some other pictures from around that area, visit this episode's notes on my website at benfast.ca. As always on this podcast, I want to hear about what you're doing to get through the coronavirus isolation. 
What curious things are keeping you interested in learning, being active, or experimenting? I'm calling it my Curious Quarantine Club, and it's time to welcome the second member now. Hey Ben! One thing that I'm doing during social distancing is I decided to learn how to weave. So I ordered a loom and decided to support some small businesses during this time. And my loom should be here in the next week. And then I'm going to take all my unused knitting bits of yarn and start making something else with them. Well, that's a cool way to support local and get creative. And that voice you just heard is my friend and colleague Kelty from right here in the Edmonton region. Thanks for sending that in, Kelty, and best of luck with the weaving projects. As you've heard, my grandma has written a book about her childhood experiences in the Netherlands during the war. The book is called Finding Shelter, a child's memoir of World War II, and you can get your own print or electronic copy from angelinafast.com or at Chapters, Amazon, or Word Alive Press. I'll also put a link in the show notes of this show. It is a fascinating memoir full of vivid memories, childhood observations, and inspiring stories of love, hope, and perseverance. Now, back to my conversation with my grandma, as she tells me more incredible stories of life during the occupation, the impact of trauma on her as a child as life returned to normal, and how her experiences could relate to our period of isolation today. Was there a sense of returning to normal at some point? You might not know when it is, but they were there was either hope or there was sort of plans for returning to normal at some point? Well, after the big battle in the city... <laughs> um, the, the Nazis had put dynamite on all the bridges of the big shipping canal from the city to the to the seaport. And one of the bridges was right next to our house, because, uh, you know, just where we lived, the country road that we lived on became, was part of, the, the bridge was part of the country road. So nobody knew when that would blow. And uh, right after that battle in the city, when it sounded like uh, the Nazis were losing because the noise got to be less and less, and then the bridge blew, and that was such a big explosion. Every single window in the house blew, and pieces of the bridge landed all around us. That was the most scary thing, especially when my mom, we were all in the basement, but mom had brought my baby brother upstairs to, play, to just sleep in his crib for a while. And she just screamed, my baby, my baby, and she ran up the stairs. They spent all day cleaning up the glass, and at the end of the day, she said, come with me. And we well, we weren't allowed to come in the house at all, but then she had cleaned most of it up, and uh, she took me to the front room, and she said, John was in that crib there, you know that. All the glass in the window above the crib was broken and was landed on my baby brother. And then she just her voice just broke, and she said, he lay very still, and there was not a scratch on him. Just one of these, one of these miracles, you know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was. Then that was the end. And then later on in the afternoon, we heard the shouting and the singing, and the the Canadians were coming down the highway in their tanks. And I'll never forget that moment. Right. Then it was over. That seems to be a big, um, a big part of sort of Dutch Canadian relationships is that yes, that outcome. Yeah. 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 And it was so neat that there's a, a man from Niagara on the Lake that was on that battalion coming to, uh, going from Groningen to our village. And he remembers the details. He remembers the village. And, uh, yeah, so I had a really good time talking to him. Hmm. There's another soldier from Niagara Falls was there, but he passed away a year before I did this research. 
So I would have just loved to have talked with him because he did quite a, quite a, uh, oh, quite a, what do I call it? A victory, just very close to where my, uh, my grandparents lived in a park. He single-handedly captured 40 Nazi soldiers wow. by pretending he had a battalion behind him. It's such a cool story. It's such a cool story. Of course, it was the end of the war, and the Nazis by then knew they were losing, and it, it was, you know, it was sort of a done deal. So they were quite ready, I think, to uh, to surrender. Mm-hmm. But uh, he just pretended he had lots of men behind him, and they told the guys to uh, drop you one at a time, drop your gun, and put up your hands, and they did. They followed him. So he walked out of the park, which is where, where I played when I when I visited my grandma and grandpa. He walked out of the park with forty prisoners, single-handedly. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have spoken with him. So Niagara Falls. <laughs> been quite a story for sure. Yeah, yeah. Russell Sanderson. And when that big battle raged at the end of the war in the city, we could hear and see it. We saw the flames. We heard the, we heard the, uh, the whatever they were shooting off, and those things. Whatever they were, they had decided not to use air. Um, bombardment, the, the Allies did, just to save as much of the city as they could. But they did have whatever they had, some kind of missile that they could shoot off, like the, the enemy did that, and they would land around our house. So one landed right behind the house in the garden property and almost killed my <clears throat> my uncle. One landed on a houseboat and uh, badly injured the lady that lived there, and later, she, a couple of days later, she died. And then one landed in front of a house, and just the whole front yard was a huge crater. So that was all very dangerous in those last days we spent in the basement, and we were not allowed to go out, of course. Um, that was a very scary time, because whatever they were shooting off, we could hear it. You could hear the pop, and then the whistle through the air, and then the explosion. So with each one, you were wondering, okay, where is this going to hit? Where is this going to hit? Very scary. Very scary. One thing we are increasingly aware of is the lasting impact of trauma on the mental health of children or people of all ages. Already in our month-long isolation, our public health officials are encouraging people to get outside, check in with more isolated people in our communities, write journals, and seek help if necessary. I'll put some links to the Alberta mental health resources in the show notes and on my website, benfast.ca. In this next clip, My grandma talks about how the occupation affected her later in life and mentions my step-grandfather, Joe Vlar, and his experiences with post-traumatic stress disorder type challenges late in his life, too. If this is challenging for you to listen to, you can skip ahead about two minutes, starting now, to the resilient ways kids then and now make it through these experiences. I was going to mention that after this is all over, I did suffer quite badly from panic attacks. Right. This uh, from the war, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So you know, there were some um, leftovers, mm-hmm. yeah, and especially with especially with Grandpa Joe, right? Um, he really suffered that PTSD after after the dementia started, and he couldn't keep the lock on all those memories any longer, mm-hmm. and then the memories started to memories started to pour out, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that, that that was very sad. I was very sad about his condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there was no avenue back then for soldiers to debrief and to uh, to get some help. Nobody had, because what they went through in Indonesia was was was, was terrible. 
Yeah. Yeah, he experienced that even after the war. Um, he. Yeah, he yeah. That, that was this was so horrible. You know, we just went through five years. Of course, these guys were too young then. Yeah. But then after the war, they were just eighteen, and they were just old enough to go. And then they were all conscripted to go to Indonesia, of all places, to the jungle, mm-hmm. and carry on this jungle warfare against the Japanese. And it was, yeah, it was really bad jungle warfare. And no matter who I talked to, yeah, my dad was there too, and never said a word. Yeah, my, mm-hmm. it's the same story. Never said a word. Never said a word. But so many suicides. That's why so many came to Canada. Mm-hmm. They just didn't want to live in Holland. Right. Yeah, very sad. Do you think um, do you think things like like your ability to play still during the war and and your ability to sort of go through that uh, a little bit more as a child and maybe not fully realizing some of those things? Do you think that that also helped you process that later on? Oh, that's a good idea. I'm sure it did because you know we were still innocent children, especially when it when it started at age four. Like we just except I hated those curtains <laughs> <laughs> and and the noise of the planes were very very scary. Um, no, I was a child. I, we did not know everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting when the when the battle in the city started, Hoonigan started. Dad and I were standing in front of the house. I saw him standing there because there was always rumbling going on in the city and I was wondering what it was and I saw him standing by the road way in front of the house. So I went and stood beside him and I remember he reached for my hand and we stood there holding hands while all this rumbling was going on and then all of a sudden a big splash of fire and a big explosion and he would he was able to tell which buildings had been blown up. Mm. And then he looked at me and he says um, the Canadians have come too bad it has to be a battle we have mm. to go and find a place of shelter make a place of shelter that's what he said in Schuylplatz make a place of shelter and that's when they made a fort for us of straw bales in the basement and all mm. the children slept in that fort it would have saved us from shrapnel and all and flying glass but I often later I often think boy there had been one spark of fire that would have oh. <laughs> anyways we were safe yeah yeah you um you already mentioned that of course the canadians came through and and liberated mm-hmm. most of northern holland and um and then what was life like for you after that it was wonderful we were allowed to go across the bridge oh no once the bridge was built, I guess. We were allowed to swim in the canal again. We were allowed to play with our friends. Our friends came out. But, like, it was truly freedom. Mm-hmm. It was truly freedom. Uh, we had so much fun. It was like a black cloud had lifted. And even the very day already, we went outside in the yard after supper because we'd been holed up in the basement for three days and nights. So we were happy to get out. And I remember just laughing and squealing and we just couldn't get enough of the running around. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I remember that, that lighthearted feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the, the, uh, maybe the adults sort of started that. I don't imagine they must have been singing and, um, can't remember. I can just remember us being happy, like me and my cousins mm-hmm. and my brother and sister. Yes, we, we just like an outdoor party that night. Mm-hmm. And that was immediately, that was immediately after that. Of course, I, I, like I say, we'd been holding in the basement for three days and nights, so we were glad to get out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And you and then um, after that, then we had a big celebration in the city, which was amazing. Um, so many other buildings had been destroyed, and they had taken all the all the broken bricks and all the debris and made big piles out of it that that fashioned them into some kind of a looked like a stadium staircase what they made out of it with planks, so we could all sit there and. Uh, yeah, they had this big light show with, uh, we've never seen anything like that. Uh, and just a lot of music and singing. And I have a story about the, the big church in town, which, uh, I was there with my mom and they had a beautiful church bells and you could hear the church carolin. I think there's 43 bells. Anyways, we loved hearing the bells and, uh, but they were silent during the war. And then after the, when it was all over, um, the musician was fidgeting around with the bells and see if he could make them work again. And um, one of the Canadian soldiers was there, and he said he was interested in the bells. And he said, "What is the no? What did it go on? No, the Dutch person asked the Canadian, "What is the Canadian anthem?" And he sang "O Canada" for for him, and he jotted down all the notes. And then after the liberation, the very first song that those carolins played was uh, Canada. Was okay, yeah. So that's, that's another one of those connections that we have with Canada. It's amazing to think of what my grandma, her family, and the people of her town felt in May 1945, as the war, for them at least, came to an end. Here's to when we too can safely step outside and be together in person again. I know a lot of you have already started talking about what you'll do after the isolation, and please do tell me your plans on Facebook or Twitter, but I just can't imagine it will be anything like the celebrations in Groningen after the liberation. I appreciate hearing the stories about it and, uh, and of course, reading them as well. It's, uh, it's been quite interesting to learn a little bit more about your experience and, and especially now to, to think about how you know, really inconsequential it is for us to stay inside for a couple of weeks. And yeah. um, especially yeah. given that we can connect with everybody over the phone and over the computer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was too, you know, we didn't have a phone back then. And then and the Nazis took the, you know, they took the cars, they took the motorbikes, they took the bicycles. We only, only had our shoes and they wore, they were out and there was no coupons to buy new shoes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a whole, yeah, it was much more severe. You were saying you've been seeing some of my my cousins playing on their iPads and you know getting to still do a bit of their schooling at home and oh, yeah. how different it is. Oh, how different, of course. Yeah, very different. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> sometimes have the unkind thought, oh, "This is nothing, you guys." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyways, it's serious enough. We're losing a lot of people. It's serious enough. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of tips that you would give to either the kids or, or anybody who may be stuck at home about how to how to sort of get through that? Well, I think my kids are doing a good job with their kids. <laughs> I don't think I can hardly improve on that if I see how Caleb and Melissa are doing and how Wayne and Steph are doing. And like I say, they put a took a video on Sunday and here the two of them are just playing with the blankets and making a fort and talking and chatting and no. Oh, and they didn't barely have time to say hi to, hi to grandma. You know, they were just so involved in their play. And of course, they're allowed to, and they, you know, they have the liberty to, and they have the freedom to. So right. I don't know. I think the parents are doing a real good job. So yeah. I, I'd hate to interfere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except wow. I'll wave and blow kisses and do Skype and, yeah. 
Now stick around right to the end of this episode for one more incredible story from my grandma, one that I had never heard growing up, and one that really had me rereading the chapter two or three times to make sure I read it right, just after this. A big thanks to my grandma, Angelina Fast-Vlar, for telling me these stories for the podcast. I am so thankful to hear she is doing well, staying healthy and self-isolated, connecting with family in new ways, and so full of hope. This episode is also going out on my grandma's birthday, April 9th, so please join me wherever you are listening to this show in wishing her a very big happy birthday. And what are, what are you going to do for your birthday? Are you going to are you going to do anything special in your room or well, I was I was thinking about that the other day, and I thought, well, this is probably the most quiet birthday I'll ever have. So mm-hmm. we'll see who comes to the window. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I hope many of them do. I can visualize them all standing there. Maybe I'll drive through the pie plate and get, make sure they have a birthday cake for me to hand through the window. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. not too worried about it at all. And the, I guess your yours is the ninth, right? So you're yeah you're lined up with Easter this year too. Yeah, I was born on the Thursday before Easter, and now this is uh, my birthday. Is going to be on the Thursday before Easter? That's the story my mom told me. <laughs> the neighbor lady brought yellow daffodils, so she says I always connect you with yellow daffodils. Huh. So I got two little pots on my uh, step outside. So I'm starting to celebrate. <laughs> If you want a copy of Finding Shelter, A Child's Memoir of World War II, or any of her other award-winning books, I've put a link to her website in the show notes or on my website at benfast.ca. Thanks also to Ron Yamauchi for the theme music and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the logo. Check out Anna's work at a-n-n-a-t-h-e-r-design.com. Other music heard during this episode and everything else for the podcast is done by me, Ben Fast. If you want to join my Curious Quarantine Club, visit the website at benfast.ca slash cool, or send a short audio message about what you're curious about or doing in isolation to wellthatscoolpod at gmail.com. While you're there, suggest something for me to look into for the podcast. You can also find the show on Twitter at well underscore that's cool, or Facebook at wellthatscoolpod. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I've had a recommendation for getting this on Spotify, so maybe that will come later. Until next time, thanks for listening, keep being curious, wash your hands, and have a good one. And you you actually experienced some sort of contact with an airplane a little bit more personally, and I, I had never heard this story, but you write about it um, in the book of, of actually getting hit in the head with something so can you tell me that story (laughs) because i never heard that growing up no i know i I, maybe i should tell it more (laughs) make an article out of it (laughs) publish it somewhere besides the book yeah uh, mom was having company which she was a very outgoing friendly lady and i think she knew every lady in town very active in church too with the ladies uh, society i guess they called it at that time whatever so she had a bunch of ladies over for tea, and uh, they were all visiting in the front room, and all of a sudden we hear this noise outside. It's like an air show, two little planes just you know, flying over top of each other and around each other, and all these 
wailing sounds. So everybody said, oh, airplanes, let's go see. So we all went to the front porch to see these two little planes doing acrobatics. But of course, one was a, was a Nazi plane and the other one was, a, was, a, was a, an English plane, right? We didn't quite catch on to that right away until Dad came around the corner of the house and he yelled at us, get inside, they're shooting at each other. Um, so it was not a game at all. It was very serious trying to get each other down. So we turned around and went back in the house and something happened and I was knocked out. I woke up inside the house with a couple of ladies holding me up and putting me on a chair and uh, wondering what had happened. You know, they said, did she faint? Did she, is she hungry? Is she sick? I remember all that. And I thought, oh, just be quiet. <laughs> I don't want to talk. And I sat there very quietly. Um, all of a sudden I became aware that the left side of my head was sort of throbbing, burning. So I touched it, thinking it was just an itch. But it hurt, so I left it alone. And I slept on my right side at night, which I always do. And then in the morning when mom um, I had two long braids, and she would brush my hair in the morning, and I had a body pen on each side to cut away the, the stray hairs. And uh, she did the right side, and that was fine, and then she did the left side, and she tried to get the body pen out, and it was stuck, melted hair on it. And it hurt, it hurt, and I yelled, and I cried, and I begged her not to touch it. She said, I have to get it out, I have to get it out, just hang on. So she got it out, and she laid it on the little table that we were at in the kitchen. And here it was, bent like a boomerang, with hair, melted hair still on it. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, oh. And that's all she said. But there was a thousand words in her, oh. Right. Yeah, there was just a thousand words, because we both knew I had been hit. That's why I was blacked out. And I took that bobby pin and I put it up in my little dresser that my grandfather had made for my mother. It's not a long story. <laughs> put it on the left-hand side of the drawer, and that's where it was until we came to Canada. And I, I sort of wished I had stuck it in somewhere that it could have come along, but I don't know, maybe Mom cleaned it up. I don't know what happened to it. Anyways, that was my little miracle. So Dad heard, of course, she told Dad right away, and Dad went outside, and sure enough, there's a bullet hole in the front of the house. And so what happened, they feel that a bullet hit the house and exploded, and part of the shrapnel hit my head. But it hit my bottom pin. Now, that's a quarter of a, I mean, a fraction of a centimeter, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing, yeah. That was, to me, that was just, just a miracle. It was not my time to go. And I was walking, so I'm moving. Yeah. And the shrapnel hits a moving object and hits just right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost too miraculous. <laughs> Pretty yeah. amazing.